Welcome to Call Your Next Witness. This is Brian Gibbons. Um, this is another episode where we're going to do uh, a little bit of a non-legal spin today, although it is my second consecutive guest from Belrose, Queens, following Matt McCann. Today's guest is Don Gomez, who is both my cousin and also an officer in the United States Army. And w- some of the stuff that we talk about pertains to trying to use predictive performance in order to prompt predictive results. And it is interesting that he and I talked about this as it pertains to both the legal world and the military world. And I think it's an interesting conversation and it also takes us through Don's journey through the army over the years. Uh, But I just need to note from the onset uh, a disclaimer because Don is an active officer in the United States military in the Army. Uh, Don's comments are his own and do not reflect the position or policies of the United States Army, the Department of the Defense, or the United States government. Um, And those are three entities that I'm not looking to mess with, so I wanted to make sure I put this disclaimer out there right from the onset. Uh, But then we're going to delve right into the discussion. Enjoy. Okay, welcome to Call Your Next Witness. Uh, My name is Brian Gibbons with Wade Clark Mulcahy, and this is a uh, podcast where we usually discuss issues related to law, insurance, trial tactics, strategy, things like that. And we are going to do some of that today, but we're going to change gears a little bit because my guest is both my cousin from Belrose and more importantly, and the reason why he is a guest here today is he is an arm, an officer in the United States Army and has been there pretty consistently with a couple of lapses since I want to say 2001. Um, and we have a lot of interesting stuff to talk about today. But Don Gomez, welcome, man. How's it going? Thank you, Brian. I'm excited to be here. Things um, are going well. Yeah, I'm on, a, I'm on the other side of the country. Uh, weather's nicer, I think. Um, and you're in, you've been in Monterey for how long now? I've just coming over a year. So I've been here for about a year. It's nice. I can't, I, I can't complain. I, I could, if I wanted to, uh, it doesn't get hot. It doesn't get cold, uh, which people seem to like. I like it. I do miss the East coast. I do miss some of the heat, but not right now. What, what, what's the average temperature fluctuation that you see over there? It is consistent like a it's consistently about 60 degrees i'd say like if if it's 70 degrees here it's a hot day like that's a everybody's kind of excited because it's 70 degrees but you know it's the uh the advice i give people when they come to visit because they come and they're they're going to california they have a sense in their mind about what california is you have to have a jacket everywhere like if it'll be hot and then it'll get cold you so People are always weirded out when they if you FaceTime them or something because, like, why are you wearing a jacket? It's it's summer and you're in California, but it's just there's a microclimate here. It's a whole it's a whole thing. You know, it's funny is dis- despite your uh, surname of Gomez, you do have Irish blood, and it sounds like you almost described the the Irish countryside in terms of weather. Like, it never gets too cold, but 75 is like, you know, 100 and humid over there. 
Yep, I think that's about right. So first thing I want to talk about, Don, is just kind of your personal journey, which uh, has been largely military since you first enlisted. And your 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 enlistment timing was impeccable. Uh, when, when did you first enlist in the Army? Yeah, so uh, April 2001 is when I joined the Army. So this is before 9-11. I, I joined out of New York City. Um, I can just jump into the whole story if you want. Um, go, go for it. Yeah, so I was, you know, I'm a product of New York City schools, public school system, a proud product of it. Um, but I wasn't a very diligent student. And so uh, after high school started community college in New York, Queensboro Community College, I was going to study business because that seemed like a good thing to do. Um, but I had this like itch, like this desire to join the military. And I was worried, I was 19 at the time. I was worried that if I don't do it now, I might never do it. Like now was the time I'm young. Like this is this is it. And so I quit school and I enlisted in April 2001. Um, and this is, you know, this is the I joined the army. I joined a different army like the, it was just the world was different then and uh, went to Fort what was then Fort Benning uh, to do infantry training. So I was there over the summer and, and learned how to do be an infantryman. Um, and then I went to airborne school right after that. So to learn how to jump out of airplanes, three three week course and 9-11 uh, actually happens on while I'm in airborne school. So I, it was during jump week. And it's it's kind of unique, uh, you know. If you remember, all uh, air traffic was grounded on for days, on, right? Yeah, and so I was I had jumped out on Monday. Monday was my first jump, and then Tuesday was September 11th. I was literally walking to the aircraft uh, when somebody came out and like waved us off. We went back in, and and then of course we learned about um, you know, the attacks of 9-11 and then boom, it's like instantly like the vibe in the air. I had only been in the army a few months, but you could already sense like, oh, wow, this is real. Like things are real I, now. I was just going to ask, like, so you're in airborne training. You've been enlisted for a matter of, you know, between four and five months. So you're you're a baby in army terms, right? Yeah. And then you find out about these attacks was there a period of time where you and your, you know, your brothers looking at each other like, is this a drill? Is this or is this legit? Like, because it's like, oh, they must be telling us this to motivate us for something, you know, because I, I know that stuff happens. Yeah, it, that was, in fact, the exact thought that a lot of us had, because when they sent us back into the uh, the shed, there's a big shed where you sit with your parachutes on to wait to get on the aircraft. And, you know, we had told to sit down, you know, don't touch your equipment. We'll tell you what's going on in a minute. And like a couple hours passed and eventually somebody got up there, the commander or something like that, got up there and said, hey, listen, uh, two planes just hit the World Trade Center. Um, we don't have more information about that, but like all all aircraft is grounded. And so some of us start talking. And again, this is you have to put your yourself in the mindset of what things were like before then. And so a lot of us were thinking, oh, just like you said, they're telling us this to get us pumped up for something that might happen. Right. And, and then eventually, like some more time and passed and they're like, all right, take off your parachutes. 
And that's when we knew, like, oh, wait, wow, maybe something real is happening. We got back on uh, uh, buses to go back to a different uh, camp area. And the radio was on in the in the bus. And, you know, it was the, the initial reports. Like, the towers hadn't even collapsed yet. It was still that. It was still in the morning. Oh, wow. So this is fresh. This is yeah, just Yeah, yeah. And so we, we were uh, – and then we knew it was real. And so, yeah, like, like there was a palpable shift in 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 – you know, my experience and in everyone else's experience about what the army was going to be from them. So, so, so from there, you know, like I could, it's like the fast track of, of what things went like from there. So, you know, uh, I, I got assigned to the 82nd airborne after that. Uh, I deployed to Iraq in 2003 at the beginning of the, uh, the Iraq war. I was there for a year, um, came home. Uh, I did a second deployment in 2005 in Iraq. Um, but then I, I got out of the army, I actually left the army in 2006 to go to okay. school. Yeah. I wanted to go to college. So, uh, one of the things that I learned though, from my initial experience in Iraq is, uh, you know, not a lot of us spoke Arabic and we didn't have a very good ability to communicate. And I was always fascinated by history and social science and culture and language. And so I was motivated from that experience to go to school, study the Middle East, study Arabic. And so I started my studies there, um, went, eventually came back to New York City, went to the City College in New York and uh, yeah. graduated in 2010 with a degree in international studies, um, went to grad school. For, so were you were you in the army consistent from 01 to 2010 then? No, no. So okay. I was. 2001 to 2006 so i had a five-year enlistment okay and and then i i got out completely just to, to go to school you know, obviously i'm back in the army so i rejoined later but mm -hmm. i i had a a clean break from the army to go to school for those for five years okay yeah um so at what point did it occur to you that learning arabic was just going to be the way that you were going to go because that's a like i don't know anybody else who is, um, like what's the right way to say this? Who is not of some kind of Arabic descent? I don't know anybody that speaks Arabic besides you. Yeah. So, I guess I guess the uh, a lot of it stemmed from the frustration of being just a regular soldier on the ground, you know, doing patrols or and coming into contact with people, and not having the ability to communicate in basic you know in basic language and there were so many opportunities to de-escalate situations or exchange information that were lost because we just we didn't have a good op uh, ability to do that and a lot of us you know we tried to learn a little you know basic phrases while we were there but not enough to really make an impact so, uh, but it, it seemed to me uh, at the time in 2006, I'm like, okay, you know, the war is still going on. Uh, this seems to be a uh, something that is both useful and interesting to me. It, it seemed like a good uh, option to pursue. I had always wanted, I, I, you know, I went to school in New York. I learned Spanish, uh, you know, every every semester and didn't remember any of it. Um, but I, I <laughs> un, actually... Un poquito. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I was motivated to, to learn Arabic. So I, you know, I started that journey. I'm still studying now. It's, it's been a, a long, 
process. You're never quite done. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, that's, it, it all came, it all started there. Um, and with Arabic, and I'm going to reveal my ignorance on this now, but how many different, I, I, I don't even know if it's an appropriate question. How many different dialects within Arabic are there? Cause and I know there's more than one, but you could tell me 20, you could tell me 500. I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot. Uh, I don't know the exact number, but there's basically, you know, pick a country in the Middle East and they've got, there's a dialect and probably within that country, there's multiple dialects depending on what, whether you're in the city or whether you're, uh, you know, in the countryside and then what part of, of the Arab world you're in, the, the, uh, the language will be a little bit different. What I focused on is something called standard Arabic or modern standard Arabic, which is the formal written Arabic. The best way I've heard it described, people don't speak it tech, uh, on the street. They speak it on, you know, in official broadcasts or in the news or speeches, but it's the equivalent of like Shakespearean English. Okay. And so um, when I do find myself in the Middle East uh, and I, I use my very formal Arabic, it often gets, you know, people, they, first <laughs> they laugh because you sound very formal and you're yeah. using words that people don't typically use in normal settings. So um, the, the the value, though, is like you're understood. It's funny, but you're understood. I, I just love the idea of white guy from New York shows up in you know kabul and starts speaking arabic so immediately everybody's like oh my god this guy speaks arabic and then it immediately transitions to oh he thinks he's fancy <laughs> yeah yeah and uh there's usually a pause because uh, there's usually a pause because like you said that people don't expect arabic to come out of your mouth and so when it does there's usually this pause of like did I hear what I just thought I heard? And then you keep speaking like, oh, wow, this this guy's actually speaking Arabic. Um, but it's yeah, it's been it's been good. It's it's been a fun journey. Um, it's frustrating. It's like kind of like learning math. You know, it's I'm only good at it if I'm doing it. Once I stop, uh, I yeah, I lose it. You get rusty real quick. Yeah. So what do you do to practice when you are, you know, when you're stateside? So I. I have kind of like a daily routine basically to keep it fresh, which is I, I'm a, I'm a Duolingo fan. I use Duolingo, you know, just to, to kind of warm up my brain, but basically I read, I read articles. Hmm. Um, I'll take classes from, uh, you know, usually every year I'll take like a refresher class to learn, you know, to keep my speaking up, but, and then I listen to podcasts. Uh, I'll listen to podcasts in Arabic and uh, that's usually a good way to just keep me in the game. The podcasts that you listen to, are they in the formal level of Arabic that you're talking about usually? Usually. And so what you'll have is often – if I'll listen to a lot of uh, interview shows. So you'll have like the host, and the host will usually be speaking very formal Arabic, and then the guest will be speaking a um, – you know, either a dialect or a – some version of standard Arabic, like somewhere between their dialect and the standard Arabic. So it's actually really useful. So you get to hear the the formal Arabic and also a dialect and, and you have to try to keep up with both of them and it cha it changes. The the best way I could kind of describe it is, you know, we have different um, regional dialects in the United States. And so if you think of something like somebody from Boston speaking with somebody from New Orleans, you know, with a really thick um accent like there's going to be some 
problems. Disconnect. There. Yeah. Yeah. They, they'll they'll figure out what they're trying to do, but it's gonna, there's going to be a lot of hey, you know, what did you just say? <laughs> um. So what's your status now? Like, so you're you're an you're an officer at this point, correct? Yeah. So uh, after I, my break from the army to go to college, I I rejoined the army. Uh, as an officer. So I, I went through what's called officer candidate school, which is uh, kind of the, you know, you have West Point, you go to West Point to get a commission, you go to ROTC, and then you have officer candidate school. It's kind of the, uh, it's another way in. Um, and it's for folks who are prior enlisted. So uh, I uh, I did that, and then I came back into the Army. This is in 2011, and so I've been there ever since. Uh, I've done a bunch of things since being back in. I've been an infantry platoon leader. I've Went to Afghanistan and Iraq in in those roles. And then um, I've been a, a, a small unit leader. I've been a company commander. I've been a military advisor. And uh, my last job, I taught Arabic at West Point uh, to, huh. to, cadet, to cadets there. That was my last job. And so now I'm, you know, the Army puts, you know, puts you on little breaks to do what's called professional military education. So that's why I'm out here at Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey. I'm studying here as uh, to better my education, and then I'll go back into the, the operational force next year to continue my service. Okay, and uh, and I should have put this at the the top, but there there may be times during our discussion where I ask a question, and the answer to that question very literally is. That information is classified. So I just want to put that out there. That is uh, uh, that is not Don big timing me. That is <laughs> that is when somebody is uh, an officer in the army. There are certain topics that are probably not appropriate for a a legal podcast. So if that answer comes up, just to give give all the listeners a heads up on that. So so you are now still so you're. An officer and a student now, for lack of a better term, correct? Correct. Yep, that's it. Okay, so what are you hoping to use Arabic for going forward, like for your purposes? Yeah, so Arabic is, I mean, that's in the position I'm in, it's a requirement for my job. So it's something I have to um, maintain. But, you know, one of the things that uh, I'm researching out here, and one of the reasons I reached out to you earlier in the year, was uh, there is a challenge that we face uh, in not just the military. I think in a lot of professions where we there's these things that are happening in the environment. There's these intangible things that are happening with human beings that we are trying to discern whether the things that we're doing are having an effect. Um, and those are hard to measure. And these are things like will or morale, like the will to fight or or a unit's morale. And we all tend to have a sense of when morale is good. And it, this is this it works the same in a company as it would in, in a military unit. You know, or if you, know, you tend to have a sense if the morale of your coworkers is high or if it's low. And you know this from the vibes that you get in the office or from the interactions that you're having with people. But if somebody asked you to put a number on that, like, hey, what is where is the morale between one and ten? You could pull a number out, but you know, then suddenly you're gonna be questioning, like, well, where'd you get that number from? Like how you how are you discerning that? And so this is a this is a uh, a challenge that 
has existed in military operations forever. And so it's one of the things that I'm looking at as out here as part of my studies. Um, and that was one of the reasons I reached out to you uh, initially. I know you did this podcast and um, uh, I have very cartoonish ideas of what lawyers do. And <laughs> so do in I. my, yeah, in my mind, I think about, well, you know, if you're a lawyer and you're working in a company or for a firm, I'm betting your bosses are curious about how things are going, you know, and either you win or you lose. And I guess there's some, there's probably some gray zone in between there, but what, what are the things that you tell or what are the things that you're looking at to determine like, hey, is this going well or is this going poorly? Do I need to change the things that I'm doing? Like, are my, are my arguments falling flat? Um, and so th those are the types of things I'm looking at. And I've, I've been looking at them across disciplines to try to get a sense of like, hey, well, what are other people doing? What are other folks in other professions? What are they looking at to determine whether the things that they're doing are ha having the effect that they want? And and how to measure those, those like the putting putting numbers on intangible things. Like, do, does the Army call that type of analysis like metrics or analytics? Yeah, so there, it's all about it's assessments, and then so like once you start getting into the the literature of it, it starts to get really wonky. Like, well, measurement is different from a metric, which is different from an assessment. But a lot of it is coming down to the numbers on things. Mm -hmm. And there's there's a a general taxonomy here that people use, which is like measures of performance versus measures of effectiveness. And the way that I like to describe it is a measure of performance is the thing that you did. So it's it's the argument that you delivered. It's the uh, it's the message that you put out or it's a patrol that you did on a street. Mm -hmm. And then the measure of effectiveness is what that thing accomplished. So I can I can give a military example like okay, we did 10 patrols this week. All right, and so that's a number. I have a number. That's 10. We did 10 patrols. Well, what was the effect that that had? Did it reduce violence in the area? Did it increase violence in the area? Mm -hmm. um, are people talking about the patrol or things like that? And so these are the, the kind of two broad categories that we have, but they're, it's still often not satisfactory. Like it doesn't satisfy the need. Like I can say we did 10 patrols and violence went down. And then someone's going to go, well, did the patrols cause the decrease in violence? How do I know, you know, it, was a it wasn't a holiday or something like that? And so there's this really challenging circle that we have of trying to understand what we did, trying to understand the effect that it might have had, um, and understanding that future things that we're going to do hinges on whether these things are working. And so I imagine, like I, you know, I like using your example because it's uh, it's something I don't know anything about. Uh, giving an argument uh, in front of a jury, like, and I don't know, you're looking at the jury and they're making faces or something like that, and you're like, oh man, maybe this isn't working. We, we might need to go back and um, and rethink what we're doing without really knowing, because again, we're talking about human beings. Mm -hmm. So these are intangible notions. It's all based on judgment, experience, uh, things like that which also we don't have a good true measure for for those things. Yeah, jur jury trials specifically are notoriously unpredictable. Um, and I'll give you just an example. It's like a, 
uh, I was talking with one of my partners the other day who likes to use an example of, okay, if uh, we just tried this case and we got a good result, but there might be some post-trial motions that will prompt the need to try this case again uh, because the decision's going to get reversed. We're going to have to try it again. And the people that are the risk managers who we report to might say, okay, well, if the trial happens again, should we expect the same or a similar result? And to your point, we can put on the same performance, but in terms of getting the same effect, it's going to be a different jury. Uh, it's probably going to be a different judge. And the jurors, you know, it, like even in while you were talking about the different patrols, like you did 10 patrols, right? Well, were all of those patrols conducted with the same level of effectiveness? And what were the variables that were in place for each of those patrols? You know, uh, the the jurors are all human beings that um, with pretty good consistency do not want to be on jury duty. So when you're doing jury selection from the beginning, you know, think of it almost like an open mic night for a comic, except the comics audience does not want to be there. And um, if they end up being there, like they swear to, to they ha they 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 swear to to abide by the judge's instructions. They take an oath. They do everything right. And for the most part, they do pay attention. But make no mistake, they generally do not want to be there. So you take that in conjunction with, OK, this one batch of jurors, which is a giant, um, immeasurable aspect of this equation. You know, like to if you if you ever took physics in high school or college or anything, physics is about eliminating variables from the equation. Jurors are always going to be a variable, even if you have the same jury over and over. Uh, because they're human beings, they they bring their life, you know, to us, uh, whether they're having a good day or a bad day. Once you throw in different variables of different, you know, different jurors, so to speak, uh, different juries, that makes predicting future results a lot more challenging. Um, so, you know, we can control the performance but the goal is to control the effect. And, you know, that's that's a little bit more difficult. That that's when you get into the nitty gritty of, OK, what can we do to prompt the next jury to respond the same or better than the last jury did? And like to your point, OK, these patrols seem to have been effective, but is there a way to measure like the first five patrols seem to be slightly less effective than the next five patrols. What did we do differently on that? Were we more aggressive? Were we were we a little bit more, you know, a little bit more passive? You know, it's these are the hard things to measure. Um, you know, but to your point, and this is why this is a valuable discussion, is it's nice to know that that. People in the military slash legal and risk management world deal with the same types of problems, um, you know, measuring the immeasurable, so to yeah. speak. Yeah, and that's what's fascinating about, like you said, having a conversation like this is because as 
if I'm using a military example, I'm, you're hearing things that resonate with you, but you're connecting it to your profession. And it's the same way when I hear you talking like, oh, yep, it's the same problem, just a different context. Now, here's where it gets really weird, because uh, like you said, the thing that we care about is the effect. We can control for the performance, but we are interested in the effect. The challenge becomes there uh, once the once you once you can manipulate things, manipulate performance to move the effect, you tend to focus on that. So if you can dem demonstrably continuously make that effect move in the direction that you want, the incentives usually align to make you do that. There's a whole uh, subset of this uh, of these studies that this is called Goodhart's law, which says like once an effect becomes a target, it no longer becomes uh, a good uh, measure. So, let's say you know, giving my using my example again, we want violence to go down in an area. Well, if I can make the violence go down by doing a whole bunch of things. That looks good. It seems to be the thing that we want. I can every week after week make that violence go down. But what other effects are the things that I'm doing having that I'm not measuring? So, huh. like, you know, you can, you there's lots of ways to make the violence go down. You, know, you could lock down an entire area. Nobody's in or out. Great. The, the, I made the thing go, I made the number go down. But is that really what we wanted to do? What What's the effect that this is having in other populations? Uh, yeah. And so... You yeah, reduce so this, the short-term violence, but build the long-term resentment, which you're not measuring right now. Correct. And the, you know, the other challenge here, and this goes back to, I think, why this is an interesting conversation to have, you know, across different professions, is usually bureaucratic incentives align for those short-term successes. Uh, if you can show me wins. That's great. That's what I want to see. You know, that's what's going on your report. That's what's going up to shareholders or whoever, whoever yeah. we're, we're talking about. Um, so everything is aligned to make the number move. And uh, good professionals, you know, will work really hard to make that number move in the direction that they want. You know, as you're saying it, I'm thinking of an example in another field. Um, so in Major League Baseball, the World Series, on a pretty consistent basis, the games start at 8 to 8.30 p.m., which means those games end between 11.30 and midnight. And this year, with the new rules, maybe it'll end a little bit earlier. And the reason that the games end that early, excuse me, end at that time, that's they've, they've figured out that 8 to 11 p.m., on the East Coast anyway, time frame, is that is the time that studies have shown prompt the most advertising dollars. So if that's how we maximize our advertising revenue, then that's what we're going to do. What they're not measuring is that no kid below the age of 10 on the East Coast has seen the end of a baseball game, especially during the midweek in however many years. Like I remember in the mid 80s, they used to they, there were occasional Saturday, Sunday afternoon games. Those are a thing of the past now. So to your exact point, what they're measuring, the maximization of advertising dollars, great. They're measuring that. That's what they're looking for. That's what the bureaucratic forces are after. But the fallout is significantly reduced interest among the next generation of, you know, of, of customers, so to speak.
you know, same yeah. kind of thing. And they're, and, but they're not measuring that, or at least, uh, you know, they, they may have moved games up this past year, but for many years, they weren't measuring that at all. So that's, that is, uh, you know, performance effect. And then what are we not measuring at all? That yeah. could have a detrimental effect. The other, the other part of this and another, an easy example is, you know, we all look at the internet now and there's all these people that are influencers and are making videos to, uh, you know, make money or, or to build a brand. And there, it, it's clear that what, what can make the number go up, what could get people to look at your content are things that are going to affect your actual behavior. So like, I know if I make a viral video that's uh, sensational or, or inflammatory, that's going to get more engagement. And so I could watch that number go up. And so when you see that, it's like, oh, wow, that worked. Maybe I do more of that. But is that really what you wanted to do at the beginning? Like, did you set out when you made it, what your page or whatever, uh, was that what you wanted to do? Or is, is the, the effect that you're having now driving your own behavior? So this whole thing gets kind of um, it gets kind of complicated, and uh, the answer to some of those questions might might be yes, yeah, like yes, I want I want maximum effect, no matter the cost. Mm -hmm. But I think in most fields, that's not actually what we want. Um, but we tend to get very focused on that effect piece. This is my opinion. We tend to get focused on that effects piece without thinking about what how that is affecting the way that we are behaving or that uh, it's affecting other things that are tangential to whatever it is that we're doing. So hope that's clear. I know it's kind of, we're in the, we're getting kind of wonky. No, it's, but it's, it's all fair points because like you think about it like this, forget the, the immeasurable fallout. I was hired to, to assist the effect. So forget everything else. This is what I was hired to do. And what we're doing is helping me do my job. And so there's kind of a tunnel vision aspect of it. But every once in a while, you know, you got to kind of take a step back and and, uh, you know, see the forest despite the trees, so to speak. Yep. Agreed. Uh, so. For your purposes, and obviously we're not going to get into anything specific here, but. What do you do? professionally when you have to try to explain to a superior or a general or something along those lines of, okay, this is the approach that we want to take, but we have no measurable way to know if it's going to have the desired effect, like the performance we've done before, but you know, general says to you, okay, this, we, we see the patrols that you want to do. How do we know this is going to work? Or how do we know this is going to weigh, this is going to work the way it did last time? Yeah. And th this is the, uh, the ultimate challenge. Uh, and the, the answer can't be, I don't know. The can't be like, I don't know where I, I, it's, it's, there's no way to measure it. There like, you, there has to be an answer to this question. Yeah. Um, and same same on my end. If I throw up my hands and say, "Look, you never know what a jury is going to do," because that is true, you're not helping that person do their job. You're not helping them assess anything. Yeah. So so I think at the first at the front end, it, it's good to acknowledge the reality and the shortcomings and and what is what is and isn't measurable, um, and be confident in that. So you, not just to say we don't know or anything, but like 
be honest, like here's here's what I can measure and here's what I, I don't know. Here's what I know, here's what I don't know. Um, but things that you can do is show past success. Like, hey, we've done these things before and this is how it's gone. Here, you know, we've seen what this type of activity has resulted in in the past. And the obvious retort to that is like, but how do you know it's going to work this time? And so you need to have you need to be able to answer that secondary question. Well, I I believe that it's going to work this time because I've done this analysis, which shows me X, Y, and Z. Um, and, you know whatever those are going are going to be, but often still that's that might not be enough because especially in something you know in, in a military context, these are sensitive things and uh, the stakes are high. So people want to have certainty to the best degree that they can. Uh, before saying yes to something. So there is this other thing. Um, so we have metrics and we have pseudo metrics. And so pseudo metrics would be, I don't, I, I can't measure something super intangible, like the morale of a, of a person or, or a group, but I can use indicators that seem to uh, lend towards that. So for example, you know, uh, if we're looking at something like morale, we could look at something like, well, how often, you know, how many meals are these are these folks getting a day? All right, if it's one, that might be a metric that tells us things aren't going so well. If it's three or four, you know, hey, th th that seems good, you know. So there's not, um, these don't, ha they don't have, the pseudo metrics don't have to be so exact, but the the key here is if you can collect enough of them, so if I can get like how you know mail, are they get are the troops getting mail? Are they eating enough? Are they, do they have adequate rest? How many hours of sleep are they getting a night? If you start getting all these these things together, you start building a picture that I can't prove to you that this means that this unit has high morale, but it sure seems like these are the things that you would see if they did. Mm -hmm. So it's it's finding things that are connected to the thing you're looking for, but you can't really say with 100% certainty that it's that it's connected. And then really you're you're depending on the judgment of whomever, whomever it is that you're talking to that they get that, that they understand like, okay, yep, we, we live in an uncertain world. Uh, I can't know everything about everyone at all times, but you're, you're, what you're showing me seems to be correct. And so I, I I believe that what you're saying is true. Yeah, it's almost like you know, this is the least bad option that we have. You know, and, and it's a you know, as you were talking, I was thinking of you know, the there's no shortcuts here. Like the answer is like if you're going to make a recommendation, like I'm going to use one of my examples again. If I'm going to suggest to a risk manager that we should try a case, and I go A B C. Here's why. You know the the injury is not that severe. The plaintiff wants way too much money. And also, we think that this particular accident is defensible on our end. Well, okay, that's a fine heading, but then you kind of got to peel back the onion a little bit and say, okay, now all that being said, these are the risks that we see. You know, it's a very likable plaintiff, and the plaintiff is going to be in court every day with her two kids sitting in the front row who are four and two years old, and that could have an emotional impact on the jury. However, we still think it's worth a shot because, you know, of, you know, whatever the reason might be, the, the, based on our expert testimony, based on something that we're seeing in the medical records, you know, 
addressing the weaknesses in your own argument, I think can help strengthen it because it shows the person that you're reporting to, the person who needs answers is like, okay, Don's looking at this. He's made a recommendation and all the reasons why I would reject this recommendation, he's addressing those head on and still, you know, making the recommendation. It's not like, you know, what, what a general doesn't want to hear at the end of the day, I would imagine much like a risk manager doesn't want to hear is bad result. And then you go, oh, I didn't think of that. You know, um, I thought of it. <laughs> There's still no guarantees, but I thought of it. I'm putting it all out there. It's right. And exactly. You know, that requires I, that requires work. I think if, if you can deliver the bad news, like, hey, here's the bad things. Here's how I mitigated them. But I still am making the recommendation that we take this because this is what I think is going to happen. That's way better than than not addressing, you know, the the potential the pen, uh, the potential downsides. I do have I've got a question for you here though, though because uh, what you were saying resonated, where it like it seems like in law it's there's there's a there might be a right and a wrong. Like hey, the the case you were just talking about, we think we're gonna win this case, but there's this strange intangible thing, this girl who's the 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 daughter who's gonna cry, that you can't account for, which which also like remove that from the situation and it's it's a locked in case but we have this thing that isn't really part of law like but we know can have an effect and yep. the fact that you have to account for that but you can't put a number on it like what's the chance that that's going to be the thing that tanks the case you know i don't i'm not really sure but i do have to account for that thing that isn't real like it's not a it's not part of it's probably not in the law book you know, it's not in the code, but you, you do have to account for it. Um, yeah, and that's that's a fair point. And, you know, to, as you bring this up, this is one of the reasons why. Um, risk managers, you know, the goal is always to get a case dismissed on papers as opposed to in front of a jury. Like you want to make a motion for summary judgment saying that the plaintiff has not made out uh, a, a prima facie case, has not, has not met their burden to be able to put this case in front of a jury. Uh, because the reality is a, a real sympathetic narrative in front of a jury um, can be really compelling. You know, I'll, I'll give you an example of Let's say it's a what a case that we think is a defensible case, and we have, you know, a variety of reasons to think that we might get a defense verdict on liability, or potentially even if we the plaintiff proves that we are responsible for the accident, that the damages are not that bad. Well, what the plaintiff's attorney is going to do is they're going to come in and they're going to give a summation after all the witnesses have testified. And they're going to say to a jury with the plaintiff's kids in the front row and husband and maybe parents or whatever. So my client, uh, ladies and gentlemen, is asking you for compensation for her pain. Now, think about the word pain. What does pain mean? Well, I think you could make the argument that pain is what all of us strive to avoid from when we are little children until we are 85 years old. When a three-year-old is going to go to the doctor and get a shot, 
what do they say? They say, mommy, is this going to hurt? Because they're concerned about pain. From the age 85, if you are fortunate enough to pass away in your bed surrounded by family, you know what your family's going to say after you die? They're going to say, at least he's not in pain anymore. Pain is what you strive to avoid from the moment you're born for the duration of your entire life. And ladies and gentlemen, my client is in pain every single day because of their negligence. So I'm going to ask you to award her $6.8 million in damages to compensate her for that pain. Now, everything that I just said is well-spun you know, narrative, but it is also incredibly compelling, especially you have a couple of kids in the front row and you have people like, oh my God, that's right. Like, I wouldn't trade places with this woman for $100 million considering all the pain she's in. And all of the stuff that I just said is exactly why we don't like jury trials. And I'm not telling tales out of school if I say the risk management industry is adverse to jury trials, uh, because think about what risk management means. It means you're managing risk. Letting six strangers decide is not <laughs> you know, is not an ideal option. You know, you think of it as I'm a defense attorney. I have a plaintiff's attorney uh, on the other side who and regardless of what you see on TV, most plaintiffs and defendants do play along nicely and get along. Everything is cordial. We are so far apart on what we think should be the end result of the case. We are so far apart that we both say, ah, what the hell? Let's let six strangers decide. That's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous idea, but sometimes you have to, um, you know, because uh, a for whatever reason, it's just some cases have to go to trial. But for the reason I just described, it is such an immeasurable and intangible thing that before risk managers are going to sign off on it, they're going to want to know what the chances are of success and why have none of our other avenues to avoid this worked. And for my purposes, I better be able to address those questions or, you know, or they're going to be looking for another lawyer. Yeah, it seems like the challenge then is in going back to the intangible stuff is like, so how do you then wrap your arms around all of the possible things that could happen in a jury trial and uh, attempt to put either numbers or percentages on on how things are going to move up and down based on the performance that you're doing? That's uh, that's the that's the challenge. Yeah. And you never know, you know, you know, the 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 juror aspect of it, you know, it's it's. You select six jurors that there's there's schools of thought of how to pick a jury. My personal school of thought is I try to pick jurors that seem to like me. Um, you know, the idea of of trying to figure out in an awkward public setting that because this guy is a Puerto Rican bus driver from Brooklyn who went to uh, Queens Community College and uh, likes baseball. Oh, that means that this is what he's going to do on, on that, that. That's to me, that's total nonsense. Um, so I just try to get people that seem to like me. And conversely, if somebody seems to think that I'm a jerk, I try to figure out a way to exclude them, you know, without wasting my, uh, 
my my peremptory challenges, which now we're getting into the the law weeds. But yeah, um, but that see that's fascinating because there's what you said first is if you take all the the demographic information about a potential juror, that's a science. All right, this person's an X is a Y and is a Z. We could put values to that, and I, sure. I have to imagine there's a subset of law folks that that's what they do. And then there's the art part of it, which is I've got a feeling about this guy mm -hmm. based on my interaction. And uh, I can't tell you where it's coming from, but I've lived a full life. I've met yep. lots of people. I've had experience with things like this. And I'm telling you, this is the guy to go with. And it's the art versus the science that, you know, you know, when there's money involved, especially money or, or mm -hmm. risk, it's like, yep. well, I don't know. I don't like your art. I want to I want to see what the science Show me the numbers, you know? Yep. Yeah. And that's, you know, sometimes it's, it's, it's immeasurable. And even when it's immeasurable, then the follow-up is, can you at least explain it? Like, you don't want to say, I have a hunch about this guy. You want to be, you know, cops used to say that all the time when I was a prosecutor, they would come in. Like I had a hunch that this guy had something. No, you didn't. You know, you're saying you had a hunch and you're not explaining it well. But there's something else to it. You've been a police officer for six years. You looked at this guy, and as soon as you made eye contact with him, he made eye contact with you and put his hands on his waistband and walked in the other direction. Now we're not talking about a hunch anymore. We're talking about something that you saw and felt, you know, but it's that's a matter of articulating it. And that's, you know, yeah. that's another that's challenge. Great. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, well, listen. This has been great, but I got to leave you leave off with um, with a question for you here. And I usually put at the end of the podcast, I ask people who are usually either attorneys or at least some to some degree in the world of risk management, what their favorite legally themed movies or books or whatever are. But I'm not going to do that with you because you are a military guy. Um, what is your favorite war movie and what is the war movie that annoys you the least in terms of how it presents its subject matter? So that's so, really two questions. Yeah. So I'm a fan of this podcast, so I knew that was coming and I basically figured out that that's what you would ask me, that it wouldn't <laughs> be, a, it wouldn't be a law movie or, or a law thing. It was going to be a military one. So uh, I'm, I'm a little bit prepared. You asked it a little bit differently than I thought you would, but I'm, I'm ready. So uh, I am a big fan of both Full Metal Jacket and Apocalypse Now, as as uh, not as realistic depictions of military life, but just good film. Like it's good, it's good movie. They're they're mm -hmm. good movies, and uh, I I enjoy watching them. Um, and then I'm going to give what is probably a controversial answer to like you asked me what annoys me least, but I'm going to tell you which one I like. I really liked. Uh, because I thought it captured some aspects of of military life or service really well, and a lot of people disagree with me on this. So, and it's Hurt Locker, which huh. won it won an Academy Award, I yeah. think Best Picture. And when it came out, a lot of military folk and veterans were very much against it because it it has a cartoonish. Uh, kind of idea of what a single person might be doing as a uh, bomb disposal guy in Iraq, uh, like leaving the base and all all kinds of things that just don't happen. Um, but there's two things that happened in that movie that like like hit me. That I was like, wow, this is they captured a feel. 
and there's there's I wasn't a bomb disposal guy, but and I've been on streets uh, on patrols in in Baghdad, and uh, the that film captured some of the tense moments mm-hmm. of quiet and things going on around you that you don't quite understand and the fear that can kind of sink into your stomach in a way that I hadn't seen in a lot of movies. And then of course there's the famous scene towards the end of the, uh, the movie where he's, you know, it cuts from him being in Iraq to being in a, um, an aisle in a supermarket looking at all the choices of cereal. Mm -hmm. And so you go from this very sandy beige, uh, location to a colorful supermarket with the choices in front of you and so now this guy's got to choose what cereal to get and, and it's just it just captures the kind of the absurdity of of coming home and having to from going from one extreme environment to something completely different and so i loved the movie for that but i'm in a super minority and i recognize that because it has so many other uh flaws in terms of real realism but i'm you know i'm willing to look past that because it's a movie it's not a documentary well it got some of the flaws but it it at least got a couple of those little feel things right to your point you know that's like and i i think that was directed i want to say Catherine bigelow directed that and i you know she probably did her homework in that sense you know like like when someone does their homework and they capture a feel, you know, like what it's a terrible movie, but there's a book called the bonfire of the vanities about, um, you know, about a, a hit and run collision and then a trial in the Bronx. And the guy who wrote it, Tom Wolf was a famous writer. Like you read the book guy did his homework, like all the little silly details that develop a feel. And it sounds like what you're saying, like just the, the juxtaposition of, you know, like this guy's, in the cereal aisle looking at a thousand different choices and is thinking to himself, holy shit, I was in, you know, I was on the streets of Baghdad looking at nothing but nothing for months and pondering the silence and worried about a million different things. And now look at this. The, the, uh, like, that's, that's, that's good movie making, you know, capturing that absurdity. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, like I said, I'm in a minority for I think there was like all kinds of op-eds that came out from like veterans around that time. Like, how dare they? It's a you know, they 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 got it wrong. But uh, yeah, it's like you said, it's these the moments that I care about more and capturing a feel like you've seen it. You, you, you watch a show or a movie and when they when it gets you, when it grabs you by the gut and it's like, oh, mm-hmm. that's it. You can mm-hmm. look past everything else. Yeah, I'm I am a fellow giant fan of Apocalypse Now, but I could also see that uh realism was not at the forefront of uh francis ford coppola's uh you know of his yeah. uh you know I, I would imagine that there's not too many um you know 80 pound overweight generals at the end of a cambodian river that have taken over a you know a team of of you know native citizens and made them his own standing army i'm just just going out on a hunch there i think you're probably right yeah Well, Don, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on and for your time. This has been a blast. Thanks. Yep. I look forward to uh, hearing more episodes. 